reading of God's word. Bigger print in my Bible. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went, left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet of Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord of God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the men of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean and that of a young boy. Then Naaman was all and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant.
The grass withers and the flowers fall. And Acts chapter six, one through seven. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Christian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give them our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Pecorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmanus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I have a whole train here. Good thing none of us know math very well, D. We'll be befuddled all day trying to figure out how old you are. Will you pray with me? Coming as we do, Father, armed with grief and anxious thoughts, with distractions and opportunities, with overload and maybe loneliness. In all the different ways we find ourselves, we are now here. And what I would like for you to do for these people that I adore, and I know you adore more, is that you would give us all the capacity to say with the apostle, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. So turn our eyes away from worthless things and preserve our lives according to your word. Wake up our ears that we might hear delightful things from you. Let our eyes be also enlightened so we can see that there's more going on than generally occurs to us. We need you to convince us. We need you to heighten and bolster our belief 
that you can and should and may happily be trusted. So come help us. Come be near us. Come surprise us, Holy Spirit. We invite you now. Amen. For these next several weeks as we move into the fall, it seemed good for several reasons to talk about what we're calling open our eyes. We finished the book of James as we looked at those words through the summer, and as we move towards the fall, I don't know about you, but I find myself waking up in the morning and I don't even need coffee because the anxiety buzz does the trick. The starting back of school, the incessant demands, the amazing opportunities that exist and the tugs on our attention and time, all sorts of things that seem good, some that seem bad, but all the good can turn bad because it's so much. And it gets easy to forget what we're doing or why we're doing what we're doing or what should we be doing. We get bounced around, like Thomas Merton once said, like a sentient billiard ball. Bounced from wall to wall, but we feel those bounces. And so we're going to spend a few weeks looking at some peculiar priorities. First, as evidenced by the apostles here in this story in Acts 6, and also picked up by Naaman in this episode with Elisha in 2 Kings, these, these priorities that are reminding us what we ought to give attention to and therefore what we might ought to neglect. Because our tendency is to neglect the wrong things and to give, it, or give attention to the wrong things and to neglect the things that might do us good. And so we're going to talk about Scripture. We're going to talk about prayer in hopes of bolstering your confidence in the Scriptures, something that might not exist for you very much, in hopes of bolstering your confidence in the practice of prayer, which might also not seem like very much. And so we start by looking at this episode in Acts chapter 6 which is really kind of amazing. The book of Acts itself is about the continuation of the ministry of Jesus on the earth while he's ascended into heaven. He's told his disciples at the beginning, stay here gathered and huddled together until you receive power from on high. One day he says you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and when you do, you're going to become witnesses of the resurrection. You're going to become walking billboards. A community, a community, a circulatory system of grace that is going to remind the world, show the world what happens when God invades human life and reverses it for good. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so that happens at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes and people are awakened. God comes to live inside them. And they get altered. They want new things. They, they despise what they formerly loved. They, they get their worlds turned right side up. And the church is growing. And when there are growing populations, there are pains accompanying that growth. Infrastructure issues. And so the church is caring. One of the things it did really well was care for the poor. And it's caring for its widows, something that God would care about a lot. 
And you have these Jewish widows, you have these Greek widows, the Hellenistic ones or the Gratian ones. And the Greek widows, the Greeks are saying, hey, our widows aren't getting the same amount of food. When you hand out the food each day, they're getting overlooked. They're not getting treated the same way as the Hebrew Jews. And here's what's peculiar to me. And if you ponder it, you might think it's peculiar too, that these apostles who had been with Jesus, they said, it would not be right. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That's how they respond. I just want you to let that sit for a second. There are widows who can't eat. They're not getting food. You know about God. He's a defender of widows. They said, we can't deal with that right now. Because we have something called the ministry of the word of God. So here's what I want you to do. Select some men who are known to be full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. Select them to care for the widows. We will give our attention to the word of God and to prayer. We won't neglect those things. So, as a sidebar, this is how churches have come to believe that the starting point of the elders and deacons, that elders are sort of derivative of apostles and that deacons are derivative of these sort of super steroid prototypical demons, uh, demons, deacons, sorry. (laughs) We have some Wake Forest people in here. They're the demon deacons. (laughs) There you go. There's a deacon. Deacons, these super studly deacons that we believe that this is where this sort of division of labor took place, that you have these, these, these folks attending to these spiritual, which doesn't mean it's not the same as not real, just not visible. They gave themselves to these spiritual matters of shepherding, and then this class of officer who takes care of practical matters, care for the poor, care for the vulnerable, care for the widow and for the orphan and for people in distress that takes care of these physical things in tangible ways. That's where this idea of elder and deacon come from, and it's developed in the Bible some. But I want you just to think with me for a second about how peculiar you might think it is if somebody in your world, and maybe you yourself, an important person, confronted with some very pressing issue, if our president had some summit awaiting him, that all the world leaders were going to come, and he said, I can't give myself to that right now. I must give myself to the ministry of the word and prayer. People would think he was even more insane than they think he is now. Because that doesn't seem like a real thing. Ministry of the word? You're going to tell people about the Bible. You're going to try to speak for God? And you're going to pray? (laughs) Well, that's ridiculous. Those aren't real things. We all know that. And yet the apostles thought they ought to give themselves to it. And we hear the early church being described as people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to the breaking of bread. And they therefore shared things in common and the church was growing. And so the apostles thought this was mighty important. And the people also thought it was important. They devoted themselves to it. 
Well, it's an interesting thing. Because it doesn't make all that much sense to us most of the time that we would devote ourselves to practices like these. And we're not all apostles. We haven't all been given the same calling as they have. None of us have their specific calling. But, but this notion is throughout the scriptures of paying attention to the words and ways of God and listening to him and talking to him in prayer. Why was it so important to them? This will get a little bit at why why the scriptures are important. Why was it so important to them? Well, for one reason, the prophets and the apostles did not have the luxury that you and I have. Here's one of our luxuries. We can actually say things like this, and we know people who say things like this with a very straight face, in utter earnestness. Let's talk about what you think God is like. What is your conception of God? The God I worship would never treat people like that. The God I worship would never deprive someone of what they really wanted. The God I worship would never say this or do that. Let's talk about your conceptions of God. Let us have a dialogue and debate together. Well, here's the thing. We can do that. Western civilization people can talk about divinity. We can talk about God. It's a philosophical construct. It's words. But very often there's no, there's no correspondence. There's no reality behind the word. But for a prophet, a prophet, and this is why you hear these stories about how they became prophets. They're call stories. When Isaiah stands in the heat of God's presence and the fluorescent light that shows up every blemish of his life and he can't even look at him in the face after that when you say to Isaiah hey let's talk about God he's like quit playing around because you're playing a game because he knows something he's been burdened by something he's seen something that he can't not see That's why they had these messages that they were going to get them in trouble. No one liked ever what they had to say. The apostles, first century prophets, who had been with the Lord Jesus and saw his resurrection and were endowed with his Holy Spirit, had received revelation and were told to go into all the nations to make sure people knew They could not play around. They did not have the luxury of debating whether the Bible was true or not or whether Christ was really literally resurrected from the dead because they saw him. They touched him. They watched him give life back. They watched him come back to life. They saw their own dashed hopes reassembled like a a ceramic vase that had been put back together and you couldn't even see the seams. They knew that this was not just some philosophical conversation. And so they were burdened. They were burdened with reality. And they couldn't leave it alone. They had to talk about it. They knew something was coming. They knew that there was something behind all these words. And that's why it became such a priority. But for us, we don't see what they saw. And so it's easy to dismiss it. It's easy to 
to grow cold to it. It's easy to say, eh, we can read that or we can read something else or we can pray or we can just practice mindfulness or we can do this or that. But we, no, it's, just, it's just good ideas. It's just life hacks. And the prophets and the apostles would say, no, 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 I'm sorry. It's life itself. And we can't stop no matter what it costs us to make sure that people know. Abraham Heschel has said that the prophets, and thereby, by extension, the apostles' teaching, which is in the New Testament, give us an exegesis of existence from divine perspective. They give us an exegesis of our existence from the divine perspective, which is a fancy way of saying they tell us God's interpretation, God's take, on our lives. Nobody else can give us that. And that's why they were so urgent to talk about these things, to direct our attention to these things, to say there's nothing more important than these things. And they knew that life depended on it. You know, we just recited the confession of faith. We gave questions this week from the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Y'all know what the Westminster Shorter Catechism first question and answer is. I'm sure everybody in here, if you don't know the catechism, you at least know the first question and answer. What is the chief end of man? And what is the chief end of man? Right. Right. No, you, I heard it. I heard it a lot of times in unison almost. It was like it was recited. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But if we said, what's the second one? There's probably like some kids who grew up in a PCA home uh, don't realize this is a PCA church. <laughs> and they, they might know what the second one was. But you know what the second question and answer says? The very second one after, what's your whole purpose in life? It's to know God and to enjoy Him. And the second one is, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. What, how do we know? How do we, how do we know how to enjoy him? How do we know how to glorify him? Do we just make it up? Do we improvise? Well, in a manner of speaking, but it has to be informed. And how do we know? And this is what the divine said, this 17th century dudes. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. The word of God contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, that's what tells us what our life is about. And then it goes on one more. The third question, what do the scriptures principally teach? They start out this whole discussion about God and the Bible and all that. They started out with, what is this whole Bible about? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. It tells us a divine exegesis of human existence. What we're for. How we can glorify God. How we can enjoy Him. And it tells us what our duties are, and what we're supposed to believe about God. Because he's real. 
And so we can't just make up stuff. He has revealed himself to us in these words, and the prophets and the apostles are carriers of that revelation. And that's why they think it's so important, because they are burdened creatures who need us to know what ultimate reality is. The reality that is further out than our own noses. That's bigger than our own conceptions or whatever just occurs to us. Or whatever you hear somebody who's got a PhD from Stanford suggest. The prophets want our attention. The apostles want our attention on the words of God. And on prayer because they want us to know what life is. But then you run into this question, because those divines who came up with the shorter catechism, larger catechism, and the confession, Christians, they, they, they give weight to the Bible, but here's the question. Emma Jones put it this way. I was told this story this week. I did not get permission to share it, but I thought it would be okay. Oh, hello, Emma. I didn't know you were here. I thought you were in Sweden. I'm still going to tell it. It's a great story. She was five, I understand. And Leah had attempted to homeschool her. And this is a sort of story that I, how I can imagine almost all uh, aborted homeschool attempts start and end. In this short of a fashion. Her mom, and she was five, Leah. Leah's not here, is she? I don't see Leah. Leah, I understand, this is secondhand, was trying to teach her daughter mathematics. She was trying to teach her about equivalencies. So she pulls out a nickel worth five cents. She pulls out five pennies. She places these before her daughter. She's teaching her these rudimentary concepts. You see, Emma, this nickel, this one piece is worth five cents. These five pieces are worth five cents. They're each one. So you can have five ones to make five, or you can have one five that makes five. They equal each other. She's teaching currency, equivalency. Emma takes this in and says this important question. How do you know? (laughs) That's a great question. How do you know? How do you know? Well, that's really what Christianity boils down to, what the Bible boils down to, what modern life boils down to, really. It's like, how do you know? How do you know you should trust one voice over another voice? How do you know you should lean one direction versus another direction? How do you know if you're, as John Mayer opined in his quarter-life crisis, that you're living it right? Or as Ivan Ilyich said the same thing in just more Russian tone. What if I've lived my whole life wrong? How do you know? Well, Naaman, in this story in 2 Kings, gives us a little picture of this. This, this Norman Schwarzkopf type fellow. The, the leader, the commander of the armies of Syria, of Aram. And we're told that this neighboring nation, that he had gained great renown because the Lord had given him victories. He didn't even know the Lord, and the Lord was superintending geopolitical affairs as he does today. But Aram had this problem. He had this great esteem. He had this great reverence from his countrymen and from the king and had all these victorious battles. But he had leprosy. 
It's a dangerous kind of situation to be in. But there's this little slave girl, which in and of itself is a horrible story. We don't know the story, but a, a little Israelite girl had been taken captives by the Aramaeans. And Naaman's wife had her as her servant. And this little girl somehow, away from home, this little girl knew that the word of God had power because she knew the God of Israel, who is the only God. And she says, tell my master, Naaman, tell him to go to Samaria where he'll find the prophet there who can heal him because he's a man of God, because he has the words of God, he has the power of God. And so Ben-Hadad The king of Aram sends a letter to the king of Israel and all this loot and all these clothes. And he says, Naaman's a great guy. Heal him of his leprosy. And the king flips out. I can't heal nobody. What are you trying to pick a fight? He has no faith. This little Israelite girl has faith, has confidence that God can heal, that God can restore even a pagan. The king doesn't even think he can call on the Lord. He doesn't even realize, oh yeah, I have a prophet. This guy Elijah, he's done amazing things. Elisha says, calm down, send him to me. And when Naaman comes with his pomp, his regalia, his chariots and his horses and all his men, and he comes to this house of Elisha, Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. It's awesome. He sends his messenger with a word from the Lord, something like this. Naaman, tell you what do. Go down there in Chickamauga Creek. Get you a little Copenhagen juice. Spit it on there. Wash it in a creek. You'll be good to And Naaman is very offended. He doesn't actually say Copenhagen juice. and doesn't say Chickamauga Creek. I'm con- making it contemporary. But he may as well have to Naaman because Naaman is offended. He's a great man. He's a known fellow. And the prophet didn't even come out to meet him. And then he tells him to go to some rinky-dink body of water, the Israelite river, this dingy, dirty thing. Why can't we go to some real river that I can't even pronounce the name of in Damascus? But he thought not only that, but he thought there's some kind of ceremonial prayer that would attach itself to his greatness. He had a picture in his head of what dealing with God should be like. And so he was told, here's how you may be cured of an incurable condition. And he said, "Uh uh-uh. And he was livid and he left. He was furious. Here's how you may be cured. I don't want to be cured like that. And he left. And thankfully, he, like us, like we, had aides, friends, who could speak some sanity to him and say, "Um, excuse me, McFly, you just were given a prescription to heal up what is unhealable. If they had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you not have done that? Well, he just told you a minor thing. How about give it a whirl? Naaman was in the position of a young Emma Jones. How do you know? How does he know that this is the way to heal? I know that something great should be done for a great man. He presumed to know how God should act. And so when he 
encountered the word of God through Elisha, he got angry. He was offended. It seemed ridiculous. You want me to do what now? You want me to go into a room and talk to somebody who's obviously not there? That's what prayer feels like sometimes. You want me to read this ancient book that's clearly been put down because, you know, because scientists, because they know everything. They can see everything, and they've been around forever, and they give orders to the morning. It seems silly. There's so much about the Bible that we come to, and we have our own preconceived notions, and we have our own thoughts about God, and we say, I can't do that. That seems dumb. There's no way that could be right. That seems ridiculous. Everybody in our world says it all the time. Naaman said it too, and thankfully, he had people who said, don't be an idiot. And you know what he had to do? You know what he had to do to get cured, to get healed? He had to postpone himself. He had to let himself be possessed by a spirit of self-postponement, which is a description of Christina Rossetti, who wrote in the bleak midwinter, that 19th century poet. Her brother said she was possessed of a great spirit of self-postponement. That's why she could be content. That's why she could trust. And Naaman had to postpone himself. He had to postpone his own strong aversions to the word of God. His own strong sense that this seemed too paltry. There's no way I can get healed by washing myself in this dirty water. He had to postpone himself. Which is another way of saying humble. Make himself humble. To pause for a minute and say, what if... What if God knows more than I do? What if God's ways are not my ways? What if his thoughts are not my thoughts? Hey, maybe there's somewhere that's written somewhere. And he postponed himself. And it came out. And his skin was fresh and soft and vibrant as a young boy's skin, we're told. He postponed himself. How do you know that the scriptures are true? Well, when you come to them, you have to postpone yourself. Do you know the Westminster Confession says in chapter 1, all of it starts with the Bible stuff. It says, how do we know it's true? Basically, that's one of the questions. How do we know it's true? It talks about how are you going to figure it out. And it says, well, here's the thing. You might think because of the unity of it all, or because of the excellencies of the matter that it covers, or how well it's been preserved. And there's all of these reasons why you might come to think that the Bible is true. But the truthfulness of the Word of God, the only infallible assurance for its truthfulness and authenticity, is the Holy Spirit bearing witness in your heart that it's true. No microscope helps with that. You have to postpone yourself. You have to drop your arms. You have to surrender yourself to this reality. And you have to say, Lord, let these words come to me. And here's what happens to people. You know it. Some of you know it. Is that you get this reverberation. There's something inside you as you hear it. You start to say, that's it. That's true. And even when you can't do it, even when its commands are too big or they're they're beyond your capacity, even then you start to know it's true. No, Lord, make me able to do what you've commanded me to do because I can't do this. That's where the prayer comes in. 
You think you can do what God's commanded you to do? Heck no. Not perfectly, not well, not all the time. And sometimes it requires this phenomenal courage. It requires, like the apostle said, now give your servants great boldness. Consider their threats and enable us to speak the word of God boldly. There's this recognition that you need the life of God if you're going to understand the words of God. You have to submit yourself. You have to postpone yourself. The way you're going to find out whether the Bible's true is by reading it and sitting with it and taking it into yourself and then acting on it as if it were and asking God to open your eyes like Elisha asked for his servant's eyes to be open, to see that there's more going on than you can possibly imagine. How do you know you postpone yourself? And when you do, you know what Naaman found out? Because Naaman, after he got healed, he went back to Elisha. And as Walter Brueggemann would say, kind of like, kind of like after you've been to the chiropractor or after you've been to the service station or the plumbing problem's been fixed, you settle up with the guy. How much do I owe you? This is fantastic. And he goes to Elisha. He's like, how much? Pulls out his money roll. How much? And Elisha says, I ain't taking a penny. You mean an outsider of Israel? Somebody who's not one of God's people can be the recipient of wholeness and cure purely for free? I wonder why they want you to read the Bible. Maybe you could find out that God is way more gracious than you imagine, and you could have an offset to the voices that are always condemning you and leading you to condemn others, to the severity in your own head that tells you that you're not enough, and they're not enough, and nothing's right. And then you come into contact with a God who won't receive payment, but will say, I will give you freedom. When you call to me, I'll be gracious to you. I was reading recently, Winnie the Pooh, I'm sorry. I heard some people talking about how great it was, so I thought, okay, well, we'll see. And poo, it just sounds ridiculous even to say it. He gets stuck in Rabbit's window. And poo and I have some uh, physical similarities. I'm a little broader up top, though, I think. Much taller. But he gets stuck in the window. And he's like, He's stuck. He's wedged. He's a wedged bear. And so his head's out this outside and his feet are inside. And there's no getting him out. None of the animals have the strength to pull him. And so he realizes all he's going to do is have to stay there until he loses some weight. It's quite a dilemma. And as he realizes he's going to be there a while wedged in this window, he says to, to uh, Piglet, I think, Well, while I'm here then, will you read me a sustaining book? that is filled with great help and comfort to a wedged bear in great tightness. (laughs) Would you read me a sustaining book that would be full of help and comfort to a wedged bear in great tightness? And I thought, dang, A.A. Milne, you gave me something there. And I think, why... Why do the apostles think, I've got to preach the word of God. I've got to pray that the God will make it effective. Because you know why? 
Because their message was, here is a sustaining reality for wedged people in great tightness who are filled with nuisancehood, who can't be good at school and at home at the same time, who know down deep in their crawl that if God's keeping score, they're losing. And all of a sudden, they have this message that says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And if you will turn to him, and if you'll keep turning to him, He'll purge you of your sins. He'll wash the mildew of your filth away over and over again. And he will bring times of refreshing to you wedged bears in great tightness. That's why he wants you. That's why the prophets and the apostles and God himself has given you this book. It's a sustaining book for the incurably ill who need a grace like that of our Savior The grace that cured Naaman as he self-postponed. The grace that raised Jesus from the dead. The grace that holds out an invitation to any who will come. And a reminder of that invitation, always in these words. Come to me that you may live. I hope you wedged bears in great tightness. will call on and postpone yourselves to submit to this book of great sustaining comfort. Amen.